Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. My guest on today's episode is the brilliant, uncategorizable, ever-curious, fearless literary explorer, Jeff Dyer, essayist, critic, novelist, and beyond all that, I can tell you, a wonderful fellow to have a beer with. I can't resist cribbing from the New Yorker writer, Catherine Schultz, who's described Jeff as one of our greatest living critics, not of the arts, but of life itself, and one of our most original writers. I couldn't agree more. Jeff's new book, The Last Days of Roger Federer, will be out next month in the U.S. and the U.K. Welcome to Beyond the Page, Jeff. Uh, Thank you, John. What a great pleasure to be speaking with you. And my pleasure, too. You're going to be speaking at this summer's Sun Valley Writers' Conference, but having loved The Last Days of Roger, well... We don't really need to add the Federer, do we? I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you love tennis as you do, he's just Roger uh, forever. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but having loved it uh, so much, I couldn't resist having you on the show a couple of months ahead of schedule just to give our listeners a taste of what's to come. So the subtitle of the new book is And Other Endings, which leads me to ask, paraphrasing someone who's still very much not ended, David Byrne, how did you get here? What led you to write a book about endings, and what do you mean by that idea? Uh, yeah, well, that's a, that's a, uh, we're, we're a big plunge, question. <laughs> plunging right into the, the heart of it. Uh, and I think I'll just lead up to that by saying that uh, from the outset, I was saying I didn't want a subtitle. And hmm. I really hate certain genres of subtitles, those that typically say something like, how two kind of down-and-out guys from Berkeley mm-hmm. brought down the Soviet Union or something like that. <laughs> I just hate these subtitles. I like, uh, yeah, I just don't like them generally. And as often happens with me, whenever I lay down a kind of over-my-dead-body thing with publishers or in <laughs> life more generally, then one moment I woke up and I thought, oh, God, this, and this subtitle and other endings came to me. And I thought, this is actually, not only am I not going to oppose this idea of a subtitle, I want this subtitle. Because, I mean, the title of the book, The Last Days of Roger Federer, it's deliberately deceptive because it's not a tennis book, it's not a sports book. It's about all sorts of things coming to an end. I mean, one people's lives coming to an end, mm-hmm. their athletic careers, their sporting careers. And this was just something which had been bubbling away in my consciousness for a few years. And then the moment came when I thought it was the the right moment to address this subject. What originally, if you think back a few years, do you remember when the sense of this gathering idea, probably many different things you were working on at the time, how it sort of began to bubble up in you and what it made you think about? Yeah, I think in a way of defending the title, I mean, this question of when 
Roger Federer was going to retire has been simmering for quite a that long while now. We've all, yeah, we've all been amazed that he's kept going for so long. And it's an interesting issue, really, about people quitting and giving up. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when you ask about when did the idea first come to me, well, we almost get into a kind of past life regression in that whenever I think of a date, then I realize, oh, actually, I can think of instances of things coming to an end that predate that. Mm -hmm. So one of the sort of fun things in the book is in a very early section, I talk about this time when my friends and I were out on this thing called a Duke of Edinburgh Award Expedition mm -hmm. in England when I was about 12 or 13, something like that. And an announcement came on the radio that this great, soccer, this legendary soccer player called George Best had quit football at an incredibly young age. I can't remember exactly, about 26, 27, something like that. And I remember that lodged in my very, very young consciousness of this extraordinary thing that somebody should give up on something when they were pretty much at the at the height of their powers, mm -hmm. a phrase that I've become increasingly suspicious of as I get older. I mean, you always, <laughs> if a writer is ever described as being at the height of his or her powers, it's a sort of pre-echo of a nail in the <laughs> coffin, isn't it? Very <laughs> true. You're done. <laughs> so yeah, so this has been simmering for quite a long while. There's a thread through this about the pandemic. Mm. It sort of seeps into the, the book itself and into your musings and ruminations. And I'm wondering if looking at it now, would you say that the pandemic has catalyzed or altered the journey of the book in different ways? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm always dillying and dallying and it always takes me a long while between having the idea for a book and fully committing to it. Mm. And I'm not sure that I would have got round to committing to the book were it not for the way that COVID concentrated the mind, because we can remember very clearly how it felt that the world was quite suddenly coming to an end. Hmm. And it's quite interesting, isn't it, that now we're kind of emerging from COVID, hopefully for the last time. But, I mean, now it seems that that sense of the world coming to an end with COVID, I feel, God, and that was a rather cozy version of the world coming to an end. Mm. Now that something even more catastrophic is happening. So for us to lament things coming to an end for us, which is basically meant we couldn't go to cafes or restaurants for a bit, you compare that with this terrible footage coming out of Ukraine, and you realize mm -hmm. that, oh, maybe we were rather indulging ourselves of this being an apocalyptic end to the world, because really, it wasn't so bad compared with what's happening now in Ukraine. Which, in a way, I think just points out the richness of the metaphor of the ending, what that means, and in different levels, different ways. And there seem to be more violent aspects to it, obviously, what's going on in Ukraine. And then there's the relative philosophical side of it at home during the pandemic for writers. And yet at the same time, it sort of pulls on the same thoughts we have about how long we're here for and what we're doing. Yes, that, that's right. And of course, it's closely related to my own experience of getting older. And I think one of the things going on in the book is that we're all familiar with these novels that talk about, you know, a day that would change their lives forever. And whenever I read that on the cover of a book, 
uh, I always feel, yeah, okay, I'm not going to be reading this book because I think <laughs> it's this experience of the gradual that is much more interesting. It's a much more profound experience. And what happens is that one grows old so gradually, and then there comes a point, though, when you realize, oh, yes, I'm really not 20 or 30 or whatever it is anymore. And I think COVID, I mean, for me, COVID gradually ushered in this consciousness. And I feel it's not unusual for somebody of my age. I'm not really, although, you know, I enjoyed my status as being able to get discounted tickets at the cinema as a senior. But yeah, I feel that before the pandemic, I was a kind of coolish middle-aged guy. And I've come out the other side of the pandemic in sort of right on the brink of a form of old age. And it's been a great disappointment to me that this has happened. <laughs> well, I should mention for our listeners who may not know, because hearing you speak, I would think you were about 129. You're actually only in your early 60s and you play tennis several days a week. So we're, we're all good here. Um, <laughs> but you talk about the gradualness of this ending, which is the sort of latter part of life or work in that way too. And I think that really comes through the book beautifully. And one of the first epigraphs in the book is an unforgettable line from a Louise Gluck poem. Mm. If it is so difficult to begin, imagine what it will be to end. It made me go back and think about all these things and your other books and your general sort of approach to subjects, if you will, in a different way. And I was wondering if, for instance, out of sheer rage, was ever in your mind as you set out to write this new book? Yeah, well, there is a section in the new book about Lawrence's last phase of mm -hmm. Lawrence's life. I'm not sure how much overlap there is with Out of Sheer Rage because it's always been a, a point of honor for me that I don't suffer from that masturbatory tendency of rereading my old books. And I think that's mm. a good thing. On the other hand, it could easily mean that I'm actually saying stuff that I've said before. So uh, there's that. But, that. but thankfully, you won't know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So it'll remain ever fresh. Yes, uh, there is I, that I, sort I, of Alzheimer <laughs> uh, benefit like that. But it's not so much, I think, that out of sheer rage specifically is in my mind, but I'm very conscious that I'm not the young writer that I was when I wrote, say, But Beautiful, the book about jazz, all that kind Love of that stuff. Book. Mm -hmm. uh, well, thank you, John. And, yeah. you know, one of the things about Out of Sheer Rage is that it's been described various places as being a book about writer's block. And the irony is that I had no trouble at all writing that book. I was <laughs> full of energy and it was a joy to write, actually. And it's only as I've become older, really, that that, you know, you have to have a real confidence about you to write a really bonkers book like that. And I think you it's, absolutely do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things as you get older, that you can, I think, typically you have less, not more confidence as a writer. But also in the other thing that you become conscious of is that there are these themes that you keep coming back to, certain preoccupations that manifest themselves in, in different ways and they're expressed differently. But yeah, I think it's pretty usual for writers to have certain concerns. And in the course of this book, I certainly became very conscious that one of my long-standing themes had been the desire to give up. And the book begins mm -hmm. with by no means spectacular revelation that that song, The End by The Doors, is actually on their first LP. <laughs> so 
that was a good place to start because, I mean, that's where I start off. And I'm aware that I've been preoccupied by this idea of quitting, of giving up, of giving up writing, really from a very early stage. And then at various points, I talk about the way that actually I think it's that desire to give up that has kept me going, that's enabled me to lead the life of an ostensibly prolific writer. (laughs) Well said. So speaking of those preoccupations that go way back, I wanted to ask you about your personal touchstones, you know, those figures in life and art that you keep returning to both for inspiration and for the ways their lives and their works hauntingly mirror your own and and others. So just to roughly catalog from the first 50 pages alone of the new book, here are some of the things you write about. The Doors, as you just mentioned, who actually started in Venice Beach near Mm. where you're living. The tennis player, Andy Murray, God bless him. Dylan, Kerouac, D.H. Lawrence, of course. Turner's late paintings, David Lean's brief encounter, and foundationally for the book, I would say, Nietzsche. And the list keeps growing from there. And then occasionally it circles back on itself and it goes all the way to, as it were, the end. So as you were writing, did you see in advance how these preoccupations or touchstones might flow together? Or was it more piecemeal, more like a series of short walks rather than one long trip? Yeah, well, thank you, John. I'm very happy to talk about this. The initial concern for me is always just to accumulate material, which I I find very difficult. So I would just write stuff without any regard to how it might fit together. Mm. But with each of the nonfiction books, I've always been concerned with this idea that there should be a form which is uniquely suited to the subject matter. So as the material is building up, at a certain point, I'm hoping that some wave starts to manifest itself of organizing this material and structure form. That's been one of the things that's always interested me. And at a certain point of just letting stuff accumulate and keeping an eye on the word count, because there's always that lovely moment. If I get to about 40,000 words, irrespective of quality. Uh, And I can't emphasize too much how important it is to me that I don't pay any regard to quality. At about the 40,000 word mark, I think, oh, yeah, there's a book here. We're going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then I continue to accumulate material, but also some things that are becoming manifest in the material suggest a possible structure. So, as you've rightly said, there are these there were these passages about these figures, and then it became interesting to me to find ways of both coming back to them, but also keeping a kind of narrative going. So, I hope in those in the early section of that early part of the book, there's that something quite interesting is happening. So that, for example, I'm writing about whatever it is, and then I suddenly, out of nowhere, talk about arriving at Miami airport going on a on a road mm-hmm. trip and listening to Gillian Welch for the first time. Uh, yeah. Then the next section moves on to something else. So the reader might at that point be thinking, what on earth is going on here? Has he lost his mind? And right. then a few sections later, <laughs> it when, you know, by which time we're discussing Nietzsche in Turin, mm-hmm. where he famously has that breakdown and throws his arms around the neck of a horse who's been 
beaten by a cab driver. And then, uh, so there we are in Turin, and it turns out that there was a reason why Gillian Welch had been mentioned earlier, and then we move into a section which is very relevant to what happens to Nietzsche in Turin, but as refracted through the work of Gillian Welch. And so what's going on, I like to think, is almost like a musical thing whereby some little phrase or theme or whatever it might be is introduced in a relatively quiet way, and then that theme fully emerges a bit later. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that goes on in the book, hopefully, is that we get this thing of a kind of looping around combined with a forward progression. That's Mm -hmm. what's going on. There's no real story or plot, but I hope there is a kind of narrative and thematic progression in the book. And it's in the texture of the structure of the work itself. It becomes its own sort of exploration. Yes, exactly so, yeah. And it made me think whether you've always seen things in this way or wanted to investigate things in this way. And there's at one point in the new book, you're making reference to Camus and Larkin and some others. You write, after a stage in a man's life, especially if a degree of eminence has been achieved, it is essential that he retains some residue of how he saw the world as a 14-year-old. What's that residue for you, do you think? And can you talk a little about how you remember seeing the world at 14? Yes, yeah, that's a key part of the book for me. And I guess I could weirdly illustrate it more in time in terms of my absolute horror of its opposite, Mm. which is that people, when they get into middle age and of people becoming grand or pompous or self-regarding, and that just fills me with such horror when I encounter it in other people. And I, Mm. I I don't want to boast, but I feel pretty confident saying, I know I don't have any tendencies that way myself, thankfully. Agreed. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And uh, in the case of Larkin and Kingsley Amis. I mean, they're two real unreconstructed old reactionaries. But Mm -hmm. it's funny, this manifests itself, especially in their letters, in this kind of real kind of 14-year-old kind of smutty talk, which I must must say I absolutely enjoy. And yes, it seems to me (laughs) infinitely preferable to the opposite. So I think I contrast something that Kingsley Amis says to Larkin with this sort of You know, I love Camus so much, but that awful moment when he's being interviewed for a French TV show, um, and I think the engineer is called, uh, happens to be called Albert. So when the director says rather curtly, Oi, Albert, will you move that light over there? You know, and Camus says, No, no, say Monsieur Camus. Um, You know, that's a devastating moment for me, the way that Camus seems to have become intoxicated by his own eminence, which is particularly terrible given his background with a mother who's illiterate, you know. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, I wonder, by having such a strong notion from early on of what you want to avoid, (laughs) in a way, the sort of the end point that you absolutely do not want to arrive at. I then, in a way, it recalibrates your beginning a little bit. And Mm. I would imagine sort of gets under a lot of the choices you do end up making, both in life personally and then as a writer and how you want to write. Mm. And I wonder if some of that bubbled up as you were working on this book, which is 
such a stew of all these things. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, it's not so much that it bubbles up. It's more that it's just there in my sort of DNA, I think. And it manifests itself, I like to think, most obviously in this question, which is so important of voice or tone. Mm. And I think I've got this, I mean, every every writer has his or her own tone. But I think at this point in my writing life, I'm much more in touch with my own tone than I was, for example, in my late 20s, when I was so under the influence of, say, John Berger. And I feel that the things that constitute my tone, I think it would be that, maybe it's a very English thing, that combination of being both serious and funny at the same time, of being both Mm. very sincere and highly ironic. That kind of mixture I feel so sort of at home with, really, and it's, Mm. uh, it's not requiring any effort on my part, and it's a source of great, great pleasure to me. And crucially, it's enabling me to say exactly what I want to say in my own voice, as it were. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely right. It's a sort of natural baseline, which I was wondering, I guess, you make reference to this later in the book quite directly about, you know, who we are as that 14-year-old and how are we still that boy? Mm. How are you still that boy, I would ask? And how are you no longer that boy? Yeah, well, these are deep issues. And uh, at one point in the book, I mean, I I don't think anyone's expressed this better than uh, George Oppen, who I quote in the Mm. book who says to, to Paul Auster, um, you know, growing old, it's the funniest thing to happen to a little boy. I mean, that's... Uh, it's such uh, a... Oh, it really grabs you. Isn't it's it? absolutely it's so, true. It's so great that. But uh, just to link that up with... This, I mean, you were mentioning the epigraphs at the beginning, mm. John, and uh, whatever people think of my books, the epigraphs are always absolutely brilliant. And this book, in addition to the major epigraphs, has various sort of unattributed quotations that precede certain sections. And another key one in that is from a Don Patterson poem, which I came across, and it's just so wonderful and so important to me. It's from his poem where he says, Now, let us raise the fucking tone. And I feel, oh, yes, that is so dear to my heart. <laughs> That's a great that, that passage. Yeah, that, line, um, that is fantastic. So you, I, I think quite fittingly for a book whose subtitle is And Other Endings, you keep coming back to the question permeating our brains, all of us as we age, of when to stop mm. or maybe how to stop or even do we stop? And for people in different fields, of course, the age parameters can be starkly different. Sometimes in your early 30s, if you're a professional athlete like mm. Andy Murray or, or Federer or whomever, that's sort of an end game period. But the questions seem the same. And so the whole question of stopping seems to both troubles and inspires, right? And near the beginning of the book, you write, Retirement in the world I grew up in, the world of poorly paid, often unpleasant and unrewarding work, was something my relatives began to look forward to from a surprisingly early age. It was a form of promotion, practically an ambition. In the world I've become a part of, retirement is almost unheard of, or at least seldom admitted to. So it leads me to ask, and I'm in a world much like you that I've become a part of as a writer, is stopping the same thing as ending? 
Hmm. And is one more difficult or shameful than the other? This is a very huge question. It's what the book's about. But yes, it's one of the things that we can see it happening. We can see the problem in other people's work much more easily than we're able to see it in our own. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm aware that I've written a lot of books, and I'm conscious there are a couple of books I want to write. So I feel there are certain things I still want to say but I have doubts about my ability to do that in a way that I didn't have when I was younger. Hmm. I mean, there's so much going on in this. The question is, you might decide, okay, I'm going to give up. But then what are you going to do when you've given up? It's very difficult to do absolutely nothing. And I think it's expressed so brilliantly in that wonderful poem that I quote from Carol Ann Duffy, The Alphabet hmm. for Auden, when she just writes in this very Auden-esque way, when the words have gone away, there is nothing left to say. Um, but that often, in the case of, we can think of all sorts of examples whereby, okay, there's nothing left to say, but that's not to say that I'm going to stop saying things. And we see examples of that all the time, of course, all around us, right? Yes, we do, yeah. People who seem to have anything to say, but they keep saying it because otherwise, what would you do? Yes, and it's one of the nice things about the writing life, which I guess things have changed a bit recently, but it used to be, I think we could, if we got some actuaries to investigate this, <laughs> I think they would probably agree that typically people tended to start publishing, you know, people would publish their first novel at pretty much the age that uh, an athlete was when he or she retired. I mean, now things mm -hmm. have changed because people have, seem to be publishing books when they're younger and younger, and athletes can keep going for longer and longer because mm -hmm. when you tear your ACL, that used to be a definitive career-ending thing for an athlete. Now it's just something that you get over. But yeah, with athletes, I think it's so poignant because really at about the age when people used to start publishing their first novel, an athlete, Andy Murray is such a good, good example, mm -hmm. is faced with this thing that he can't do it anymore. And that documentary about him called Resurfacing when he's about 32, I think. And he decides to go through these multiple surgeries and we see him now sort of still laboring on the tour and you know it's what he likes doing it's in fact it's more than what he likes doing it's what he is so it's this real right. ontological question so we might say you know what's he doing just kind of toiling away like this where even if he wins a first round match the consequence of that is that he's going to be too shattered to do well in the second round right. but it, it is what he does and then with athletes there is this other thing i think which is that quite often not always, but it's not unusual for an athlete to really have no inner life at all. Hmm. Now, we're in the fortunate position, and Derek Walcott wrote a wonderful poem about this, that you could give up writing, but there still would be this thing that you could still have a fully functioning life of the mind, and you could hmm. devote yourself to becoming a reader. And I think there is, a, you know, as we're always telling our students, reading and writing go hand in hand. So even if we're unable to continue writing, we are able to continue reading. And one of the things about reading is that it's always goading you to write something in reply, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's food and exercise mm. of the interior. But this raises a related question for me, which you also get into later in the book, which is, the difference between failure and defeat, mm. right? And something that 
all people, whether you're a writer or an athlete or whatever it is, we're all so sensitive to and yet sometimes not understanding of. And I would ask, having dived into this subject in the book, and of course, we live it every day in different ways in our minds, what is the difference, would you say, between failure and defeat? And how is that different for, say, tennis players and writers? Yeah, I do delve into this in the book, but the truth is, I would have to, <laughs> I would have to <laughs> consult my own book for the uh, for the answer to, to that question. But I am okay. conscious that I answer it quite definitively in the book. I mean, so I can't <laughs> quite remember the distinctions right. I make. But what I would say is this: is that it's a a real shame, I think, when writers are defeated by circumstance, so that George Gissing's New Grub Street, I think, mm. is the classic text on this. So, you know, the, one of the writers in that just can't go on anymore, hasn't got the money, hasn't got the time. Mm-hmm. And we can think of all sorts of examples of people that we know who just are sort of defeated like that, whereas it's always been quite important for me, I think, that I would, as it were, go out on my own terms, I uh, felt pretty sure that I wasn't going to let poor sales or adverse critical reaction bring my uh, writing life to an end. Mm. And I think that's one of the nice things about writing, that if you can, assuming you can just find a way of taking care of your material needs, then you can be immune to these things. Mm-hmm. So I guess getting into the realm of silver linings, right? Mm-hmm. What do defeat and failure give us? And in a larger sense, what do endings give us? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that one of the great texts on this is E.M. Choran's essay on Fitzgerald. And Fitzgerald was preoccupied by his own sense of failure. And Choran rather wonderfully sort of says that Fitzgerald's essay book, The Crack Up, in which he describes his failure. He says, to me, that's uh, Fitzgerald's only great success as, a, <laughs> as, as an artist. <laughs> and you're sort of weirdly exposed as a writer in that you can both fail in the sense that you can fail to find an audience, you can fail to get a book published. Okay, there's that. Mm-hmm. But you can also be defeated. That is to say, having found uh, an audience, you can be defeated by the blank page. So it's uh, Mm -hmm. one is uniquely vulnerable, it seems to me, as a writer. And somehow persisting in the face of that understanding. Yeah, it's one of the things about writing that I think it's so interesting if you're in it for the long haul. You know, I mean, to exaggerate slightly, let's say anyone can publish one book. Well, I mean, that's an exaggeration. But I think one of the interesting things about the writing life is that you're obliged, yeah, you are obliged, you're compelled to examine your own ability to do it on a daily basis. And so you're actually Mm -hmm. in this position of being able to observe your own deterioration. So I think it's one of the things that it's so, you know, one can become conscious of both ways in which you have greater facility as a writer and certainly more skill as an editor, and there's all sorts of tricks you have up your sleeve. But I'm very conscious in the most obvious ways now, the brain isn't like the body, is not as resilient as it was. So I could easily have a right old night's boozing when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. Hmm. And 
that would, you know, I'd go have a bit of a hangover, but it wouldn't in any way stop me being at my desk at a reasonably early time the next morning. And within an hour, I'd have written my way out of a hangover. Mm-hmm. Now, of course... Yeah, a lot more stretching. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, not only more stretching the morning after, but a far more muted nights before. So, you know, the yeah. idea that one had to look after one's brain and spend some time in Whole Foods or Erewhon looking at these sort of (laughs) brain supplements in the hope of keeping it going. I mean, that was almost inconceivable back then. But it's an interesting process to live through. And indeed, one of the things I'm doing in the book is documenting this weird combination of increased vulnerability and tenacity. That's exactly right. And I think that's, in a way, why the book itself, while full of some failures and some defeats and victories and it has a, um, a solemnity about it, even while it, parts of it are quite funny. And at the same time, it's, it feels moving. And I guess that brings us back full circle where to sort of talk about the, your experience having written this book about endings, mm. and which is really in a way of, I think, a, a rumination from the plane that's still aloft before the final landing, <laughs> if you will, Right. And what the view is like there and what we're doing, aside from finishing off the third martini of a long journey, how would that, whether you feel that writing this book has changed you in a way or altered your sense of what an ending is? Mm. Well, one of the reasons that I think I've dillied and dallied so much about beginning books is you're always wondering not just can I write this book, but is this the right time for it? You know, Clint Eastwood, didn't he take out the option for that book, Unforgiven, in the full knowledge that he was going to have to wait 10 years or whatever it was until he was old enough to act in it. So I think this is something that writers are preoccupied by. And I've come to the conclusion, having finished this book, uh, if you can forgive me this bit of self-congratulation, I think I did it at exactly the right time and in the nick of time. And one of the things that I'm struck by is that uh, I really feel that I just got something off my chest just at the right moment. And something as, uh, this is something I might even write about, it's always been my intention, my ambition to become a career writer. One of those writers who finishes their book on the Friday has a weekend of mild celebration and then just starts another new book on the Monday. Right. Uh, the the Trollopian yes, approach yes. to the week. Yes, yes, exactly. Or in the case of Larry McMurtry with one of his books, I think he didn't even, he just started the new one the very next day. I've always wished I could do that and I've never been able to. And I've always, having been in that blissful state of being able to put in really long hours to, you know, in the final stage of writing the book, then there's always been this period of very of unspecified length where I'm unable to do anything. And it hasn't mm. surprised me at all that the aftermath of this book has been particularly uh, catastrophic for me in that I haven't felt able to do anything much. But I always knew that as a result of this writing binge, I was going to suffer from some uh, really quite debilitating hangover afterwards. Yeah, I know that feeling, but it was all worth it. And one thing you you can do is come to Sun Valley this summer where we will see each other. And I'm really looking forward to it. And 
Jeff, this strikes me as just the place to end this, so to speak. And I'm really, really thankful for you coming on the show. And it's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you, John. And I'm so, so looking forward to Sun Valley. And in a way, I'm almost glad that the 2020 iteration got cancelled, because I think this book is something that I'm much keener to talk about than the very short book that I published back in 2020. So uh, whatever... I'm glad to. So whatever goes on with COVID or or anything, they're going to have to try really hard to stop me getting on the plane at the airport and coming to Sun Valley. Me me too. I will see you there. Thank you so much, Sean. Okay, bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers' Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday.